encourage you to turn to John chapter 5. And I want to begin by reading the passage today. John chapter 5, verse 19. I'll be reading up to verse 29. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Our Father, we thank you for this, your most holy word. Thank you for allowing us to hear from the lips of Jesus directly this morning. Lord, may we take heed to these words. May you help us to understand exactly what it is that Jesus is saying here. And may we then take these truths, these words, and help us to truly hear and then to believe. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. While we are just coming off the Father's, uh, coming off Father's Day, last Lord's Day that we celebrated, and so it was interesting as I spent uh, the week preparing for this message that the passage I'm looking at, the passage I just read, talks at great length and in great detail about the relationship between a father and a son. Looking at things from a human standpoint, the relationship between a father and son, or the lack of a relationship between fathers and sons, has been shown in various studies to be very important and very much determinative into how sons will fare down the road. And we can include daughters here as well, all children. The the success of children, however you want to define success, correlates to a large degree, on what kind of relationship children have with their father in those growing up years. Sadly, the, uh, the statistics about how many children are being raised in homes without their father, or even a father figure of any kind, are alarming. Some of that is, of course, unavoidable and tragic, such as when God in his mysterious providence allows a young father to die suddenly. But much of that absence in our day is due to the abandonments by fathers of their families. Not in every case, 
but in many cases. And the result of those kinds of things can have devastating effects on children. The Bible, uh, not surprisingly, talks a lot about the relationship between parents and children, and especially fathers and sons. This summer, we're going to be spending uh, time again in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. And those chapters are actually uh, framed as instructions from a father to his son. And they basically say that if sons listen to their fathers, it will go well for them, and they will turn out to be wise, and to most importantly, fear the Lord. But it assumes the presence and involvement of fathers. Well, in an ideal relationship, as sons uh, begin to grow and develop, fathers start to instruct their sons. They start to pass on wisdom to them in various areas of life. They start showing them how to do certain things around the house or to build certain things or, or um, how to talk or how to act or how to relate to people. They even start handing off certain responsibilities to them, things like washing the car or mowing the lawn. But most of all, they affirm their love for their sons as they try to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, that's quite the introduction, but this is not going to be a series or a sermon on parenting. Because on a much grander scale, above the confines of earth and into the realm of the Godhead, here in John 5, we see Jesus talking in similar kinds of ways about the relationship between the Heavenly Father and Himself, the eternal and the now incarnate, living on earth in flesh, Son of God. The Father showing the Son what He's doing, entrusting Him with certain responsibilities. Here from verse 19 all the way down to the end of the chapter, actually, which we won't look at right to the end today. We'll look at the end of that next week. But in this chapter, Jesus speaks. This is just a a message from Jesus, Jesus' words. There's no miracle here. There's no event here. There's no healing that's going on here. It's the words of the Son of God himself. The very words of Jesus. The very words of the very Son of God. But he's talking here in response to the beginning of the chapter where he, remember last week, he heals an invalid on the Sabbath. And he's responding particularly to verse 18 where it says that the Jews... And by Jews, it's talking about the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. They were seeking to kill him, it says, because to them, quote, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the issue that's going on here that Jesus talks to. And they're actually right in that assessment. That's exactly who Jesus claimed to be. And That's what Jesus responds to here, starting in verse 19, how he relates to the Father and how the Father relates to him. And it's interesting that even though his claims create all kinds of friction, he doesn't backtrack here as soon as he's challenged and say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. He actually reinforces and strengthens the claim that made them want to kill him in the first place. And he does it in these sort of father and son terms affirming that he's a son in relation to God the Father, but also affirming how he's like the Father and equal to the Father. So why is it that that particular claim infuriates the Jews? It's because 
they had no concept in their heads of a man who would claim to be God. They were absolutely zealous for God, God, Yahweh, but they couldn't or they wouldn't get their heads or their hearts around the fact that Jesus was God. They couldn't bring themselves to believe that. They couldn't bring themselves to believe even through Jesus' signs and, and miracles, the ones that, those miracles that he did, that he was the Son of God. And now they wouldn't believe Jesus' words either. These things that he said about himself here starting in verse 19. If we were to keep going in John's Gospel, we'd see that, the, that that one thing, that Jesus claimed to be God's equal and God's Son, ignited their hostility and anger like nothing else did. They called Jesus all sorts of things. They called him demon-possessed, uh, at one point, they called him insane at one point. They called him even an illegitimate son, even a Samaritan. But they could not believe him when he said that he was God in human flesh. And we see here that to not believe what Jesus says about himself is, in fact, damning. If they didn't believe Jesus in himself as he spoke, what else is left? If they can't believe what God the Son says about God, where else do you go? What other higher authority is there? And it's all these kinds of things that Jesus talks about in this passage. I was thinking to myself this week that we might not come to this passage in the same way as those Jewish teachers. Yet, we still struggle with Jesus' claims. We don't struggle so much with, uh, over how it is that Jesus is God I don't think, or how the Son relates to the Father and the Father relates to the Son. We might not be able to wrap our heads around all those things totally, but, but we don't have the same baggage as these Jewish leaders did. Nor do we have this at the forefront of our thoughts, at least like the Jewish religious, religious leaders did. So how do these words from Jesus apply to us? Way over here, at a different time, in a different place, in a different culture. Well, the answer to that, I believe, is essentially the same answer as for the Jewish leaders. Jesus confronts us all. He crosses and transcends time and place and culture. We have to answer for the presence of Jesus. Remember, God so loved the world, most famous verse in the Bible, not just the Jewish people. God so loved the world, not just Jewish people 2,000 years ago, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That includes all of us. Jesus, Jesus and his words transcend time. So yes, here in John 5, Jesus addresses the Jewish hang-up with how Jesus can be the Son of God, but the words of Jesus confront us too. They make us have to respond one way or another because our response to Jesus will lead to one destiny or another. So my aim today, and always, is just to um, lay these words from the Son before you and to allow them then to do their work in my life and in your life. It's Jesus' words that contain the power to transform. If we uh, learn anything in this passage, it's that Jesus' voice, Jesus' word, has an amazing power to both give life and also to decide our future our future lives. His words have the power to make the dead live now and to judge 
what kind of life we will have forever. Friend, your eternal destiny centers around this one man that walked and talked in the gospel of John here back in the first century. At some point, you will need to deal with his existence as the Son of God and with his words. The question is, will you honor him by believing he is who he says he is? Or will you dishonor him like the Jews did by not believing him? And in effect, deciding that your own conceptions of God are the superior source of truth. Will you hear his voice and believe, or will you drown out his voice? Will you do good in keeping with repentance, or will you do evil in keeping with your sin? These are the kinds of things this passage confronts us with. Like I said before, we might not have the same theological sticking points with Jesus as these people that Jesus confronts here, but I think our, own, our, our culture's issue with these words is that we are mostly, generally speaking, indifferent with Jesus. Our issue is that we don't give Jesus a lot of thought at all. At best, he's somewhere in the background as some figure in history. That's especially true among those that don't really profess any kind of faith, that don't really have any kind of faith at all. The Bible, the words of Jesus don't even cross their minds. But we Christians can be like that too if we aren't careful. Our problem with these kinds of things is that we're too distracted sometimes to care. And this is Satan's strategy. We have to say that for our age. Individualism plus materialism leads to distraction. Distraction from the things that deal with eternity. I say this not to cast judgment on others. I say it because I know it seeps into my own life. Distractions, things that are far, far lesser in value or in eternal importance keep me from honoring honoring God rightly and, and exclusively. We view words like this as largely irrelevant to the things that are going on in our lives. And when we get like that, if we take it to the extreme, even though we might know in the back of our minds that we need to deal with this at some point, we're really communicating something. We're communicating something else. When we get so wrapped up in the here and now, in our lives and, and, and actions are basically saying that there is no eternity, that there is no judgment. We're so concerned about the here and now that we're functionally saying by our lives, by our lack of concern for these sorts of things, that there, there is no future. We don't have to be concerned about that now. Maybe think about it this way. If we were to evaluate our lives right now, Let's just say, for example, in how we thought about the summer. What role did Jesus play in your summer planning? Have we given any thought to, or have, and yeah, I should include myself here too, speaking the second person, have we given any thought to how we might please God? Have we given any thought to how we might deepen our relationship with God? Have we given any thought to where we might worship on the Lord's Day when we're on vacation? Have we given any thought to how uh, we maybe have more time to spend in God's word, allowing its truth to run through our veins in, in deeper ways. My sense, even if I look at my own life, is that we don't make much room for the things of God. We're distracted by this world and give no thought to the future world. The word and the, wor- and the ruler of this world is very 
effective in distracting us from the things that really matter. But this passage wants to draw our attention back to the words of Jesus. Because the words of Jesus are the very words of Holy God. The relationship of the divine eternal Father and the divine Son, the eternal Son and the words of the Father as revealed through the Son, here it tells us that that those words determine our present and future lives. That's why Jesus starts out with all those comments in verses 19 and 20. He's just further confirming that the Son and the Father are one and the same. That God and Jesus are all doing the same thing. They have the same actions, the same thoughts, the same purpose. The Son reveals the Father's will. For these Jews, if they say they want to honor the Father, as they kept on saying they wanted to do, they needed to honor the Son and to pay attention to his words. And so these words here, it says if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father, that is convicting to them. Gets right into their wheelhouse. And the implications of that start to ramp up at the end of verse 20. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Sort of the picture of a, of a father teaching his son, kind of like an apprentice. Then it says, greater works than these, greater works than healing the cripple back at the beginning of the chapter, will he show them? Or will he show, will the father show the son? So that you will marvel, so that you'll be amazed. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, he's talking there about the various times he raised people to life in the Old Testament, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Son gives life. The Son gives eternal life. He gives spiritual life. And if we keep reading, the Son has also been tasked by the Father to judge. Look again at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And so the the greater works that the Father will show the Son are the power to give new life, which we sometimes call regeneration or conversion, and he also gives him the task of judging. These are the prerogatives that the Father entrusts to the Son, life and judgment. These are the great works that have been given to the Son. And it's these two tasks, giving life and enacting judgment, that bring a sense of urgency to us in how we think about the Son. That's why we have to honor the Son, because, end of verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Friends, do not treat Jesus or his words lightly, irreverently, or worse, indifferently. He has the power to transform you for the good. Praise the Lord. And he has the power to condemn you for the bad forever. Trust him. Honor him. Worship him. And that first section, uh, verses 19 to 24, is summarized there in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you. uh, By the way, Jesus uses those words three times here in verses 19 to 29. You might have noticed as I read it. Truly, truly. Jesus is emphasizing, he's really adding oomph Um, to something when he says that. In our modern way of talking, our response when he starts a sentence with truly, truly would be boom. He's just hammered something home. These are slam dunk statements. And it seems uh, that Jesus here is giving these original hearers, the Jews, new information. He's saying something that's about to knock their socks off. Or in in their case, maybe their tassels off. So again in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is great news. Eternal life. No judgment. These are those two greater works that Jesus does. He grants life, remember, and he decides judgment. But notice that all these here are present realities. Whoever believes has eternal life. Like right now. He has passed from death to life. These are more than just future, though they are that as well. But we also enjoy the benefits of eternal life right now. If we believe, this is saying that we are already safe. We've already escaped. And we're living in that reality already. Isn't that great? But it's all contingent upon how we regard the Son. The sent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever hears my word and believes. Well, Jesus is going to come back to that thought in verses 25 to 29. By this point, the Jewish leaders are already pulling their beards out. You can just see one rabbi turning to another and whispering something like this. He's making himself equal to God. Is that what he's saying? Yeah, that's what he's saying. They're incredulous. Who does this country boy from the Jewish equivalent of Eyebrow Saskatchewan think he is? He's, he's not allowed to just talk like that. We've got to stop him. And that's what they set out to do. Well, if that wasn't hard enough to take for them, Jesus raises the stakes even higher with these next words. Still using these themes of life and judgment. It starts off again with truly, truly. Did you notice that? Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Try to wrap your head around that. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God. Do not marvel at this. Here's something else marvelous, amazing coming, shocking. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, do you see how the words of Jesus are important? Jesus can grant life and Jesus can determine our eternity. First, you can see verse 25 that Jesus has both the present and the future in mind. The hour is coming, future, and is now here. But the emphasis here is on those two purposes of Jesus, life and judgment. And both of those come together in the concept of resurrection. Life and judgment come together in the concept of resurrection. Resurrection obviously has to do with life, coming back to life. Of course, Jesus is going to talk about that in reference to himself. He'll be killed and raised on the third day. But here, and not unrelated to his imminent resurrection, he talks about a resurrection for us. In fact, a resurrection for every human who ever lived. So what do we make of this? What's Jesus saying here? Well, I think John MacArthur is right to say that Jesus is talking about two kinds of resurrections, two kinds of coming to life. He's talking about a spiritual resurrection as well as a physical resurrection. In other words, 
Jesus is talking about how he's been sent by the Father to bring the dead to life in a spiritual sense. He's going to do that for people physically in his three years on earth. Lazarus would be an example of that when he speaks into the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb even though he's been dead for days. But I believe those resurrections are, are pointing to what he can do for people spiritually and physically, but especially spiritually. Jesus has come to grant spiritual life. He's come to bring people from death to life. This is really part of John's whole purpose for writing the Gospel of John, to highlight the bringing life part of who Jesus is and what he does. John sort of summarizes why he's written the Gospel in John 20, verse 31. He says, these are written. Why are they written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And John keeps on bringing that theme out. Believe, and Jesus will give you new life. If we think this through, this is really the call of the gospel. This is the good news for all of humankind, that God sent his son so that people might be brought to life. If we think, uh, you say, why do we need to be brought to life? We're all here, we're living and breathing. But without Jesus, we have no spiritual breath. Ephesians 2 is probably best the, the place that says that most clearly and succinctly. Paul is writing to Christians there, remember, talking about who they were before they were converted. And here's what it says. It says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Spiritually speaking, there was no life. Dead people can't raise themselves. If they had any hope, someone had to bring them to life, someone else. Just like God gave the first man physical breath, Back in Genesis 2, our first spiritual breath is also dependent on God granting it to us. And God the Father has given that task of granting spiritual breath to God the Son. John 5, 25, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. The spiritually dead, I think that's talking about there, will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This should make us worship the Son and honor the Son. Jesus can raise the dead. And if you're not sure, if you're a Christian, it should make you ask, how can you know whether you are raised from the dead? Well, this tells us. When Jesus speaks to you, and he may be speaking to you right now as you're hearing, as you're reading these words, it says, when Jesus speaks to you, those who hear will live. Back in verse 24, it said, whoever hears and believes has eternal life. Believe what? What do you have to believe to get eternal life? You have to believe, first of all, that God is holy. He created you in his image and in his likeness, and he created you to love him and to honor him and to obey him. As the creator, he had the right to tell you how to live. But you and every single person that ever lived went the other way. We sinned, we disobeyed, we're separated from holy God. That's a problem. But in his magnificent love, God sent his son. And the man, Jesus, truly obeyed God 
in every way. He did what God originally wanted us to do. And because of that, he was uniquely qualified to represent us, not only in perfection, but in receiving the punishment and the penalty that we rightly deserve for our rebellion. That's exactly what happened. He died, and then God raised him from the dead once his task had been accomplished. And now we, too, can have eternal life. But God demands that we respond, that we turn away from our sin in repentance, and that we rely totally on what Jesus did. That's called faith, repentance and faith. If you do that, the Bible says that you will have eternal life, a spiritual resurrection. That's what that is. Jesus has come to resurrect sinners from the dead. It's the good news of the gospel. But there's more here, isn't there? Jesus has also been tasked with determining people's eternal destiny. All people. Verses 27 to 29 spell that out. This is physical resurrection. But the kind of physical direction or a physical resurrection is determined by whether someone has a spiritual resurrection. Let me say that again. The kind of physical resurrection is determined by whether someone has had a spiritual resurrection. Don't marvel at this. An hour is coming, so this is future, when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. So we need to hear the voice of Jesus again. His voice has the power to raise this is saying, he's got the, his voice has the power to raise spiritual corpses from the dead. Physical corpses from the dead. His voice is the only voice that can do that. Sorry, it says back in those first verses that he can raise spiritual corpses. But later, when Jesus comes again, his voice will boom out again and people will be raised again. But look at who responds here. Dead humans. Every person who has ever died. His voice will serve to empty all the graves and the tombs and even bring people back who are dust. All will hear his voice and come out. This will be quite the sight. I mean, I can't get my head around that, but just think about the amazing power it takes to do this. If you want to picture that, you can let your imagination run with this over lunch today. But just look real fast at those last two verses. For those who got a spiritual resurrection and have consequently performed good works as a result of their spiritual resurrection, it's no worries, right? It's all good. They'll be raised to a resurrection of life, eternal life forever. This is the last step of our glorious salvation when our souls are joined to our new resurrection bodies and we enjoy the glories of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. But what happens to those who did hear the Son, and did not believe. It says here that they don't just cease to exist, as some think. They're not just simply annihilated. Someone says that's what happens to those who aren't in Christ. You can point them to this passage. It says, no, that's, that's not what happens. They also come out of their tombs. They will hear God's voice, and they will come out. That's what Jesus' command is, and we always do, and we will do what King Jesus commands. They're also physically resurrected, but it's a resurrection of judgment. Not eternal life, but eternal judgment. It's a terrible existence forever. 
And everything hinges on our relationship with Christ in this life. Your future life, the kind of existence that you will have, depends on how you respond to the voice of the Son. Jesus, the Son of God, has the power both to give life and to determine your future, determine judgment, both now and forever. But it's how you respond now that will determine your forever. Cry out to God in faith. Believe in the Son. Honor His Son by believing in Him. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, this is in many ways a hard word. Yet we know that these are such profound and weighty words from the mouth of our Lord. We thank you that you gave these words to us so many years later. And we've seen that they are just as powerful now as they must have been back then. Cause us, we pray, to honor the Son with the honor that is due him. Help us to revere him. Help us to not let his words become stagnant and secondary. May we truly see that these words are living and active. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to hear the voice of our Lord. And especially if any of us, any in this room, have become comfortable in their sin, Lord, we ask that you would speak loudly and clearly, and that they would respond with ears of faith. They would respond with hearts of belief. Burst into their darkness, we pray, and their, and their deadness, and transform them. Bring life from death. Bring light from darkness. Bring belief from unbelief. Empower people to believe so that they might escape judgment and enter into the joy of eternal life. We're so thankful, our Father, as we think about this today, that you have sent your Son into the darkness. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.